Inhabit December 8th reading, You Are What You Love by James A. K. A. Smith. Chapter 2, You Might Not Love What You Think. Learning to Read Secular Liturgies. What do you want? That we've seen is the question. It's the first and fundamental question of discipleship, because you are what you love. But buried in this insight is an uncomfortable realization. You might not love what you think. Moving Pictures, Two Cinematic Explorations of Desire. This is discomforting. This discomforting epiphany is at the heart of Russian filmmaker Andrei Tresovsky's masterpiece Stalker. The genre hovers between noir thriller and dystopian science fiction, set in environs that at times evoke Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but at other moments feel like the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. The plot, such as it is, follows three men on a journey, Professor, Ryder, and Stalker, who serves as their guide. As we begin, the destination is shrouded in mystery and intrigue, but eventually we learn that Stalker is leading these men to the zone, and more specifically to the room within the zone. The zone has eerie feel of a post-apocalyptic oasis, a scene where some prior devastation has left ruins that are now returning to nature, cultivating a terrible beauty, a kind of bright sadness. The scenes of this 1980 film are a spooky harbinger of images that would emerge in the aftermath of the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. The room is what has drawn them here, what has led them to follow Stalker's promises. For in the room, he tells them, they will achieve their heart's desire. In the room, their dreams will come true. In the room, you get exactly what you want. Which is why, when they are at the threshold of the room, Professor and Ryder begin to get cold feet. Jeff Dyer captures the scene of in his remarkable book about the film, Zona. They are in a big, abandoned, derelict, dark, damp room with what look like the remains of an enormous chemistry set floating in the puddle in the middle, as if the zone resulted from an ill-conceived experiment that went horribly wrong. Off to the right, through a large hole in the wall, is a source of light that they all look towards. For a long while, no one speaks. The air is full of chirpy chirp, cheep cheep of a bird song. It's the opposite of those places where the sedge has withered from the lake and no birds sing. The birds are whistling and chirping and singing like mad. Stalker tells Ryder and Professor tells us they, that we are now at the very threshold of the room. This is the most important moment in your life, he says. Your innermost wish will be made true here. Here we are. This is the place where you can have what you want. Who wants to go first? Professor and Ryder hesitate because it dawns on them 
What if I don't know what I want? Well, observes Dyer, that's for the room to decide. The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. A disturbing epiphany is creeping up on Professor and Ryder. What if they don't want what they think? What if the desires they are conscious of, the ones they've chosen, as it were, are not their innermost longings, their deepest wish? What if, in some sense, their deepest longings are humming under their consciousness unawares? What if, in effect, they are not who they think they are? Dyer captures the angst here. Not many people can confront the truth about themselves. If they did, they'd run a mile, would take an immediate and profound dislike to the person whose skin they'd learned to sit quiet tolerably in all these years. Many of us can identify. If I ask you, a Christian, to tell me what you really want, what you most deeply long for, what you ultimately love, well, of course, you know the right answer. You know what you ought to say. And what you state could be entirely genuine and authentic, a true expression of your intellectual conviction. But would you want to step into the room? Are you confident that what you think you love aligns with your innermost longings? This, comments Dyer, is one of the lessons of the zone. Sometimes a man doesn't want to do what a man thinks he wants to do. Interestingly, Dyer has an important insight that is relevant to our concerns here. Your deepest desire, he observes, is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. This is because our action, our doing, bubbles up from our loves, which, as we observe, are habits we've acquired through the practices we're immersed in. That means the formation of my loves and desires can be happening under the hood of consciousness. I might be learning to love a telos that I'm not even aware of and nonetheless governs my life in unconscious ways. Christian worship faces this disturbing reality head on, recognizing the gap between what we think we love and what we really love, what still propels us towards rival gods and rival visions of the good life. This is why people of God are called to regularly confess their sins. A historic confession from the Book of Common Prayer names just this tension. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from the ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. The body of Christ is that unique community of practice whose members own up to the fact that we don't always love and say what we say we do, that the devices and desires of our hearts outstrip our best intentions. The practices of Christian worship are a tangible, practiced, reformative way to address the tension and gap. This elusiveness of our own loves, the way our desires can elude our conscious awareness, is also illustrated in Alan Ball's Academy Award-winning film, American Beauty. 
Indeed, you could look at the movie as Lester Burnham's Confessions, a middle-aged suburban cockold quest, quest to find himself, which spirals into an erotic adventure of looking for love in all the wrong places. In so many ways, the narrative arc of the film embodies the cliched Hollywood vision of freedom. At the beginning, the placid, hunched demeanor of Kevin Spacey's Lester Listlessly slides through a banal existence in which he is visible only when being nagged by his wife, spurned by his daughter, or berated by his employer. He trudges through life on autopilot, mimicking the herd of ordinary suburbanites whose Toyota Camrys are the badge of their selling out on their dreams as 19-year-old rebels, despite conforming to the ideal of every other nonconformist. The man has won. Men like Lester have lost themselves, left themselves behind and buried their dreams deep behind their mortgaged houses. Welcome to the age of, authentic- of inauthenticity. But then a catalyst arrives in the unlikely figure of Ricky Fitz, a high school senior doing something of a victory lap after spending time away for reasons that are vague. When his family moves in next door, it quickly becomes clear that Ricky refuses to play the game. He doesn't give a damn about keeping up appearances or living up to expectations and won't submit himself to other standards. He seems assuredly and prototypically himself. This apparently is what authenticity looks like. Lester is both humbled and inspired by Ricky's example. One night at a dreary real estate party, Lester is attending with his wife, Caroline. He is surprised to see Ricky working as a waiter. Ricky invites him out back to do something Lester hasn't done since college, smoke a joint. Hesitant, Lester takes him up on the offer. While they are behind the building, Ricky's boss threatens him. Either get back to work or you're fired. Fine, Ricky says. I quit. This bold refusal to conform to expectation is an example that Lester will follow. It will appear to be his turning point towards authenticity though the distinction between appearance and reality proves particularly slippery in this film that exhorts us to look closer. Lester, too, will now throw off the chains of familiar obligation and moral expectation. To hell with the superego. The ID will be all in this rendition of authenticity. And so Lester sets about effectively burning down the parameters of his middle-class existence. He blackmails his boss for a severance package that buys him a year of unfettered freedom. In a nostalgic move, he sells his Camry and buys a 1970 Freebird, the car of his boyhood dreams. And most ominously, he sets... about pursuing Angela, his daughter's high school best, his daughter's high school friend. All of Lester's life 
will now be organized around this longing to bed Angela. Indeed, his imagination is captured by this pursuit. His fantasies are flooded with images of Angela in various states of seductive undress, always bathed and embedded in the lustrous hollow of red rose petals. This turning point in Lester's till then predictable no-hum existence might look like his wake-up call to authenticity, his epiphany to self-knowledge. No longer conforming to the expectations of others, Lester has proverbially found himself and is now, as our culture exhorts, following his passions. His yearning looks like it will be consummated in a pen- penultimate scene where, alone with a vulnerable Angela, it seems his libidinousness desires to desires will be re- realized as neil young's don't let it bring you down provides an eerie predecent soundtrack lester caresses young angela and asks what do you want angela about to be unveiled for the child that she still is lacks the self-knowledge to answer i don't know she's says what do you want are you kidding lester replies i want you i've wanted you since the first moment i saw you the scene progresses on its tenacious course until angela makes her own confession this is my first time in an instance the charade of lester's supposed newfound authenticity crashes like a house of cards in that moment the seductive woman who had been the object of his affection is unveiled to be the young girl who could just as easily be his own daughter here is the wake-up call in lester's life here is the moment of revelation where the unveiling of angela's body reveals the disorder of lester's own loves just when he gets what he thinks he wants he realizes he really wanted something else altogether And all of a sudden, as we look back on all these fantasies about Angela writhing in rose petals, we remember it was Caroline who so tenderly cared for American beauties in her garden. And with Lester, we start to ask ourselves, is it really what I want? Under the radar, our unconscious loves. We have seen that love is a habit. This means that our love is like second nature. It directs and propels us, often under the radar of conscious awareness, like breathing and blinking. It also means that our loves acquire direction and orientation because we are immersed over time in practices and rituals, what we've called liturgies, that effectively and viscerally train our desires so just as our habits themselves are unconscious operating under the hood it is also the case that the process of habituation can be unconscious and covert covert this is especially true when we don't recognize cultural practices as liturgies 
when we fail to realize that these aren't just things we do, but things that do something to us. Once again, how we think about discipleship depends on how we understand the nature of the human person. We could also say that every approach to discipleship implicitly includes a set of assumptions about how human behavior is generated. If we assume that human beings are thinking things who are always on, who think through every action and make a conscious decision before ever doing anything, then discipleship will focus on changing how we think. Our primary goal will be informing the intellect so that it can direct our behavior. I think, therefore I am, translates into a philosophy of actions that assumes I deliberate, then I do. The problem is, this is a very stunted view of human persons that generates a simplistic understanding of actions and a reductionistic approach to discipleship. It is an approach that unwittingly overestimates the influence of thinking and conscious deliberation and thus tends to overlook and underestimate the power and force of all kinds of unconscious or subconscious processes that orient our being in the world. In short, it underestimates the power of habit. The truth is that for the most part, we make our way in the world by means of under-the-radar intuition and attunement, that a kind of know-how that we carry in our bones. As lovers, our desiring creatures and liturgical animals, our primary orientation to the world is visceral, not cerebral. In this respect, ancient wisdom about spiritual disciplines intersects with the contemporary psychological insight into consciousness. The result is a picture that should lead us to appreciate the significant role of the unconscious in action and behavior. Now, when we talk about the unconscious, try to forget everything you've heard about Freud. We're not talking about Freudian drives or cryptic psychoanalytical myths about your mother. We're talking about what psychologists today would describe as the adaptive unconscious. Timothy Wilson, a psychologist at the University of Virginia, has described this in his important book, Strangers to Ourselves, a very Austinian title. Over the past 20 years, psychology has come to appreciate the overwhelming influence of non-conscious or automatic operations that shape our behavior, confirming in many ways the ancient wisdom of philosophers like Aristotle and Aquinas. Aristotle appreciated that we can't think our way to new habits. Actions, then, are called just and temperate when they are such as the just or the temperate man would do. But it is not the man who does these that is just and temperate, but the man who also does them as just and temperate men do them. It is well said, then, that it is by doing just acts and the just man is produced. 
and by doing temperate acts, the temperate man. Without doing these, no one would have even a prospect of being good. But most people do not do these, but take refuge in theory and think that being philosophers will become good in this way, behaving somewhat like patients who listen attentively to their doctors, but do none of the things they are ordered to do, as, a, as the latter will not be made well in body by such course of a treatment, the former will not be made well in soul by such a course philosophy. Pointing out the problems with Freud's idiosyncratic idiosyncratic concept of unconscious. Wilson especially emphasizes our failure to appreciate the scope of influence and unconscious as our behavior on our unconscious has on our behavior. When Freud says that consciousness is the tip of the mental iceberg, he was short of the mark by quite a bit. It may be more the size of a snowball on top of that iceberg. The mind operates most efficiently by relegating a good deal of high-level, sophisticated thinking to the unconscious, just as a modern jumbo jet setter is able to fly on automatic pilot with little or no input from the human conscious pilot. The adaptive unconsciousness unconscious does a an excellent job of sizing up the world, warning people of danger, setting goals, and initiating action in a sophisticated and efficient manner. At one point, Wilson wagers that only about 5% of what we do in a given day is the outcome of conscious, deliberate choices we make, processed by that snowball on the tip of the iceberg that is human consciousness. The rest of our actions and behaviors are managed below the surface by all sorts of learned yet now unconscious ways of intending and navigating the world. Psychologists refer to these acquired unconscious habits as automaticities. For the same reason, Aristotle called them second nature, because these are ways that we move in the world without thinking about it. The language of automaticity isn't meant to reduce us to machines or robots. It's meant to describe how we acquire ways of navigating the world that become built in, so to speak. Take a simple example, learning to drive. As a parent who has taught four teenagers how to drive and live to tell the tale, I can say that Wilson's insights ring true. When a young person is learning to drive, every facet of this complex activity is managed and executed by the conscious, deliberate tip of consciousness. The young driver has to think about every aspect. I need to check my mirrors, push the right pedal 
to go. Turn the signal control is on the left. Must remember to check my blind spot. Push the left pedal to stop with the right foot and clutch and add a clutch into the mix and you can imagine how quickly that snowball of conscious deliberation is overwhelmed. Contrast that now with a seasoned driver. Let's say you've been driving for years since the day you got your license on your 16th birthday. It's a Thursday afternoon. You've just come out of a frustrating meeting at work. A terrible way to end the day. You head straight for the parking lot, replay the scene after mat after maddening scene from the meeting, your blood beginning to boil. When you think of how that colleague frustrated you, how another colleague basically stabbed you in the back, and how the manager seemed oblivious to all these dynamics. You're grinding your teeth now, thinking of all the things you should have said, and lo and behold, you're in the driveway, and you don't remember driving home. How can that be? Because over time, the habits required to drive, to navigate your way through the world, have been repeated over and over again so often that they have seeped into your unconscious and become automaticities. Now you can pretty much drive without thinking about it. The complex set of actions required to drive are now managed by the unconscious, below the surface aspect of who you are. The sorts of operations Wilson says are delegated to the unconsciousness, setting goals, assessing a situation, initiating action, include the operations of desire and the devices of our heart. As the Book of Common Prayer puts it, this is because character and the virtues are also located on this unconscious register. The habits we've acquired shape how we perceive the world, which in turn disposes us to act in certain ways. David Brooks captures this dynamic in The Social Animal. A person with good character has taught herself or been taught by those around her to see situations in the right way. When she sees something in the right way, she's trigger she's rigged the game. She's triggered a whole network of unconscious judgments and responds in her mind, biasing her to act in a certain manner. It is in this scene that the character is destiny. Your character is the web of dispositions you've acquired, virtues and vices that work as automaticities disposing you to act in certain ways. Your love or desire aimed at a vision of the good life that shapes how you see the world while also moving and motivating you is operated on a largely non-conscious level. Your love is kind of automatically, your love is a kind of automaticity. That's why we need to be aware of how it is acquired. Now, as psychologists John Barg and Ta Tanya Cartran observed, some automaticities are acquired intentionally through frequent and consistent pairing. 
In other words, we choose to acquire some automaticities, and the way we inscribe them into our unconscious is by choosing to practice. Anyone who can remember learning to play the piano, learning to type, or learning to drive remembers choosing to engage in repeated practice over and over precisely so that the rhythms could become habits. However, Bragg and Chartrand also point out that we can acquire automaticities unintentionally, that is, dispositions and habits can be inscribed in our unconscious if we regularly repeat routines and rituals that we fail to recognize as formative practices. So there can be all sorts of automating going on that we do not choose and of which we are not aware but that nevertheless happens because we are regularly immersed in environments loaded with such formative rituals. They highlight a powerful example, stereotypes. Stereotypes are just this sort of unconscious, habituated way of perceiving the world and acting accordingly. No one signs up to hold prejudiced stereotypes. Instead, they seep into us unawares, acquired unintentionally, and yet, over time, becoming habits of perception, automaticities, that govern and guide our behavior. Now consider the implications of this for what you love. If you think you love, think of love-shaping practices as liturgies, this means you could be worshiping other gods without even knowing it. That's because such cultural liturgies are not just one-off events that you unwittingly do. More significantly, they are formative practices that do something to you, unconsciously but effectively turning your heart to the songs of Babylon rather than the songs of Zion. Some cultural practices will be effectively training your loves, automating a kind of orientation to the world that seeps into your unconscious ways of being. That's why you might not love what you think. You might not love what that snowball of thinking on the tip of the iceberg tells you that you love. You can learn to love a telos unconsciously in two senses. On the one hand, because your loves are habits. They are mostly oper operative under the hood, below the surface. So your loves are unconscious even though they are learned. On the other hand, you can also learn unconsciously. That is, the training and aiming and directing of your loves can be happening without your awareness precisely because you don't recognize what's at stake in your cultural immersion. In short, we unconsciously learn to love rival kingdoms because we don't realize we're practicing in rival liturgies. This partly seem, stems from failing to appreciate the dynamics of the whole person, failing to recognize all the below-surface aspects that drive our action and behavior. If you think human beings are brains on a stick, you won't even be looking for these subconscious dynamics. This is the shortcoming of thinking-thingist approaches to Christian discipleship. 
This reductionist view of human person is then mirrored by a failure to see cultural practices as liturgies, as habit-forming, love-shaping rituals that get hold of our hearts and aims our loves. It is like the opening parable of David Foster Wallace's Kenyan College commencement address. There are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other one and goes, What the hell is water? We need to become aware of our immersions. This is water, and you've been swimming in it your whole life. We need to recognize that our imaginations and longings are not impervious to our environments and only informed by our supposedly critical thinking. To the contrary, our lives and imaginations are conscripted by all sorts of liturgies that are loaded with a vision of the good life. To be immersed in those secular liturgies is to be habituated to long for what they promise. Practicing Apocalypse Recognizing Rival Liturgies Christian discipleship that is going to be intentional and formative needs to be attentive to all the rival formations we are immersed in. There are two key aspects of this. First, as I've tried to show in chapter 1, we need to become aware of the whole person. We need to recognize the power and significance of the pre-intellectual aspects of who we are. We need to become aware of the importance of the adaptive unconscious that governs our action. Second, we need to see cultural practices as liturgies and hopefully wake up to their deformative power. That means looking again to all sorts of supposedly neutral and benign cultural institutions and rituals, things that we do, and seeing their formative and even liturgical power their capacity to do something to us. Seeing the world and our culture in this way requires a kind of wake-up call, a strategy for jolting us out of our humdrum familiarity and comfort with these institutions in order to see them for what they are. Interestingly, scripture has a way of doing this. It's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature, the sort you'll find in the strange pages of Daniel and the book of Revelation, is a a genre of scripture that tries to get us to see or see through the empires that constitute our environment in order to see them for what they really are. Unfortunately, we associate apocalyptic literature with end times literature. And if its goal were a matter of predict, as if it goal were a matter of prediction, but this is a misunderstanding of the biblical genre. The point of apocalyptic literature is not prediction, but unmasking, an unveiling of real realities around us from for what they really are. 
While the Roman Empire pretends to be a gift to civilization and the zenith of human accomplishment, John's apocalyptic perspective from a heavenly angle shows us the reality. Rome is a monster. So apocalyptic literature is a genre that tries to get us to see the world on a slant and thus see through the spine. I ima imagine it a little bit like the vertical louvered blinds in my room. If the blinds are tilted to the left on a 45 degree angle, then from straight on, they'll appear to be closed and shutting out the light. But if I move slightly to the left and get parallel to the louvers, I'll find that I can see right through them to the outside world. Apocalyptic literature is like that. The rival empires that would captivate us have something to hide. So you could say that they tilt the louvers just slightly to cover what they want to hide. They paint a beautiful picture on the screen, one that captivates and mesmerizes and inspires. If we look at the screen straight on, we're dazzled by what's presented to us. Apocalyptic literature is re revealing precisely because it gives us a new perspective to see through this beguiling mispresentation. Apocalyptic literature invites us to lean over and get a new perspective that lets us see through the blinders to the monster that's behind the screen. What we need then is a kind of contemporary apocalyptic, a language and genre that sees through the spine and unveils the religious and idolatrous character of the contemporary institutions that constitute our own millennia. Too much of our cultural analysis is rooted in thinking thingism. We scan culture listening for messages bent on rooting out false teachings. But if we are first and foremost lovers, and if our action is overwhelmingly governed by our unconscious habits, then intellectual threats might not be the most important. Indeed, we could be so fixated on intellectual temptations that we don't realize our hearts are being liturgically co-opted by rival empires all the while. The point of looking at culture through a liturgical lens is to jolt us into a new recognition of who we are and where we are. This means we need to read the practices that surround us. We have to learn to exegete the rituals we're immersed in. We need to become anthropologists who try in some way to see our familiar surrounding with apocalyptic eyes so we can recognize the liturgical power of cultural rituals we have we take for granted just as just things we do. Pastors need to be enthenographers of everyday helping parishioners see their own environment as one that is formative and all too often deformative. The pastor will sometimes be like the old fish in Wallace's parable, regularly asking us, how's the water? 
Eventually we learn, oh, this is water. Let me give you an example, a case study of sorts. One of my quiet moments of parental success was the day our oldest son, then a young teenager, asked me, Dad, can you drive me to the temple? I knew what he meant immediately. We re recently had a discussion in which I tried to impress upon him that the local mall is actually one of the most religious sites in town, but not because it's, it is preaching a message or touting a doctrine. No one meets you at the door of the mall and gives you their statement of faith that lists the 16 things the mall believes. The mall doesn't believe anything. It isn't interested in engaging your intellect. Its targets are lower. But don't think that means the mall is a neutral space. And don't think that means the mall isn't religious. The mall is a religious site, not because it is theological, but because it is liturgical. Its spiritual significance and threat isn't found in its ideas or its messages, but in its rituals. The mall doesn't care what you think, but it is very much interested in what you love. Victoria's secret is that she's actually after your heart. So you need to readjust your eyes to see this familiar place. Put on a liturgical lens and look at your local mall again. Read its spaces, its practices, its rituals. What might you see? Upon approach, the architecture of the building has a recognizable code that makes us feel at home no matter what city we're in. The large glass atriums at the entrances are framed by banners and flags. Familiar text and symbols on the exterior walls help the foreign faithful quickly and easily identify what's inside and the sprawling layout of the building. It's anchored by larger pavilions or sanctuaries akin to the vestibules of medieval cathedrals. We arrive at one of several grandiose entries of the building, channeling us through a colonnade of chromed arches to the towering glass face with doors lined at its base. As we enter the space, we are ushered into a narthex of sorts intended for receiving, orienting, and channeling new seekers as well as providing a bit of decomposition decompression space for the regular faithful to enter in to to the spirit of space for the seeker there is a large map a kind of worship aid to help orient the, the novice to the location of the various spiritual offerings and provide direction into the labyrinth that organizes and channels the ritual observance of the pilgrims one can readily recognize the regulars, the faithful who enter the space with the sense of achieved familiarity, who know the rhythms by heart because of habit-forming repetition. The design of the interior is inviting to an almost excessive degree, drawing both seekers and the faithful into the enclosed interior spaces with windows 
on the ceiling open to the sky but none on the walls open to the surrounding moat of automobiles the sense conveyed is one of vertical or transcendent openness that at the same time shuts off the clamor and distractions of the horizontal mundane world this architecture mode of enclosure and enfolding suggests sanctuary retreat and escape from the northex entry one is invited to lose oneself in its space that channels the pilgrim into a labyrinth of octagons and circles inviting a wandering that seems to escape from the driven goal-oriented ways we inhabit the outside world the pilgrim is also invited to escape from the mundane ticking of clock time to inhabit a space governed by different time even a sort of timelessness with few windows and a curious bouquet manipulation of light it almost seems as if the sun stands still in this space as we lose consciousness of time's passing and so lose ourselves in the ritual for which we've come however while daily clock time is suspended the worship space is still governed by a kind of liturgical festal calendar variously draped in the colors symbols and images of an unintended of an unending litany of holidays and festivals to which new ones are regularly added since the establishment of new festival translates to greater numbers of pilgrims joining the processions to the sanctuary and engaging in worship the layout of this temple has arc architectural echoes that harken back to medieval cathedrals mammoth religious spaces designed to absorb all kinds of religious activities happening at one time and so one might say that this religious building has a winding labyrinth for contemplation alongside of which are innumerable chapels devoted to various saints as we wander the labyrinth in contemplation preparing to enter one of the chapels we'll be struck by the rich iconography that lines the walls and interior interior spaces unlike the flattened depictions of saints one might find in stained glass windows here one finds an array of three-dimensional stained glass three-dimensional icons adorned in garb that as with all iconography inscribes our desires to be imitators of these exemplars these statues and icons or mannequins embody for us create images of the good life these are ideals of perfection to which we learn to aspire This temple, like countless others now emerging around the world, offers a rich embodied visual mode of evangelism that attracts us. This is a gospel whose power is beauty. 
which speaks to our deepest desires. It compels us to come not through dire moralisms, but rather with a winsome invitation to share in this envisioned good life. As we pause to reflect on some of the icons on the outside of the chapels, we are thereby invited to consider what is happening within. Invited to enter into the act of worship more properly, invited to taste and see. We are greeted by a welcoming alkalite who offers to shepherd us through this experience, but also has the wisdom to allow us to explore on our own terms as if we, if, if we so choose. Sometimes we will enter cautiously cautiously, curiously, tentatively making our way through this labyrinth within the labyrinth, having a vague sense of need but unsure of how it will be fulfilled, and so open to surprise to that moment where the Spirit leads us to an experience we couldn't have anticipated, having a sense of our need We come looking, not sure what for, but expectant, knowing that we need to be here. And then we hit upon it, combing through the racks. We find the experience and offering that will provide fulfillment. At other times, our worship is intentional, directed, and resolute. We have come prepared for just this moment knowing exactly why we're here in search of exactly what we need. In either case, after time spent focusing on and searching in what the faithful call the racks, with our newfound holy object in hand, we proceed to the altar that is the consummation of worship. While acolytes and other worship assistants have helped us navigate our experience, behind the altar is the priest who, who, who presides over the consummating transaction. And this is a religion of transaction, of exchange, and communion. When invited to worship here, we are not only invited to give, we are invited to take. We don't leave this transformative experience with just a good feeling or pious generalities, but rather with something concrete and tangible, with newly minted relics, as it were, which are themselves the means to the good life embodied in the icons who invited us into this participatory moment in the first place. And so we make our sacrifice leave our donation and get in return something with solidity that is wrapped in the colors and symbols of the saints in the season released by the priest with a benediction we make our way out of the chapel in a kind of denouement not necessarily with the intention of leaving our awareness of time has been muted but rather to continue contemplation and to be invited into another chapel. Who could resist the tangible realities of good life so abundantly and invitingly offered? The point of all this is to try to appreciate how a worldview or 
better what philosopher Charles Taylor calls a social imagery is carried in everyday rituals and practices. How do we learn to be consumerist? Not because someone comes along and offers an argument for why stuff will make me happy. I don't think my way into consumerism. Rather, I am co covertly conscripted into a way of life because I've been formed by cultural practices that are nothing less than secular liturgies. My loves have been automated by rituals. I don't eat I didn't even realize were liturgies. These tangible, visceral, repeated practices carry a story about human flourishing that we learn in unconscious ways. These practices are loaded with their own teleological orientation toward a particular vision of the good life, a rival vision of the kingdom, and by our immersion in them, we are, I'll bet unwittingly, being taught what and how to love. We could repeat such liturgical readings of cultural practices for entire array of everyday rituals. When you put on these liturgical lenses, you'll see the stadium in a whole new way, as a temple of nationalism and militarism. When you look at the university with liturgical eyes, you'll start to realize that the ideas and messages of the university are often less significant than the rituals of frat parties and campus athletics. When we stop worrying about smartphones just in terms of content, what we're looking at, and start to consider the rituals that tether us to them throughout the day, we notice that the very form of the practice comes loaded with an egocentric vision of what makes me the center of the universe, and so on and so on. You will begin to appreciate that all sorts of things we do are, when seen in this light, doing something to us. It's not just the message or ideas or information being disseminated by these cultural institutions that have important for discipleship. It is the very form of the practices themselves, their liturgical power to deform. Liturgies work effectively and aesthetically. They grab hold of our gut through the power of image, story, and metaphor. That's why the most powerful liturgies are attuned to our embodiment. They speak to our senses. They get under our skin. The way to the heart is through the body, you could say. A religious studies professor has noted the sacred and religious function of them all. Some of us are interested in religious studies because we are interested in people. People do religious things. They symbolize and ritualize their lives and desire to be a community. What piqued my interest in shopping malls initially was their concrete expressions of all three of these religious impulses. Quadrilateral architectural calendrical rituals, replications of natural settings, and attempts to be people, places, and objects of pilgrimage all illustrate homo religious the shopping mall as ceremonial center the shopping mall as more than a marketplace is one way contemporary people are meeting their needs for renewal and re 
connection, essential ingredients of religious and human life. How to read secular liturgies and exegesis of the consumer gospel. Liturgy, as I'm using the word, in a shorthand term for those rituals that are loaded with an ultimate story about who we are and what we are for. They carry within them a kind of ultimate orientation to return to our metaphor above. Think about, think of these liturgies as calibration technologies. They bend the needle of our hearts. But when such liturgies are disordered, aimed at rival kingdoms, they are pointing us away from our magnetic north in Christ. Our loves and longings are steered wrong, not because we've been hoodwinked by bad ideas, but because they've been immersed in d- deformative liturgies and not realized it. <clears throat> As a result, we absorb a very different story about the telos of being human and the norms of flourishing. We start to live towards rival understandings of the good life. Let's take the example of the mall again as a kind of case study and try to read its liturgy more carefully, to read between the lines of the practice and try to discern the social imagery that is carried in its liturgies. I think we'll notice several features of the mall's version of the kingdom. Number one, I'm broken, therefore I shop. Given the smiling faces that peer at us from beer commercials and the wealthy people who populate the world of sitcoms, we are sometimes prone to suppose that the culture of consumerism is one of unbridled optimism, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. But this misses an important element of the mall's rituals, its own control of the brokenness of the world, which issues not in confession but in consumption. One might say that this is the mall's equivalent of sin, though only superficially. The point is implicit in the point is this implicit in those visual icons of success, happiness, pleasure, and fulfillment is a stabbing, I'll bet unarticulated recognition that that's not me. We see these images on a billboard or moving in a sitcom, and an implicit recognition seeps into our our adaptive unconscious. Though, of course, the point is that we've never really articulated this. Huh, we think. Everything seems to work out for these people. They seem to enjoy the good life. Their life is not without its drama and struggles, but they seem to be enjoying family and friends who help them overcome adversity, and they sure have nice accessories to go with all that. Maybe at least part of the reason they're happy has to do with what surrounds them. That sitcom dad has one of those mammoth chrome barbecues that could grill an entire side of beef in one go. Who wouldn't be happier with something like that? That commercial kid has the latest smartphone that keeps him him connected at lightning speed. 
who wouldn't be happier if it were that easy to stay in touch with friends. That billboard mom has it all together. Her kids are smiling and seem remarkably obedient. She, She's coiffed and slim and seems so carefree. Surely that new minivan with the DVD player and 14 cup holders must have something to do with it, and so on. Do you see how the images of happiness, fulfillment, and pleasure are actually insinuating something? This isn't you, they tell us, and you know it, and so do we. What is covert covertly communicated to us is the disconnect and difference between their lives and our own life, which often doesn't look or feel nearly as chipper as fulfilled and fulfilled as the lives of the people in these images do. The insinuation is that there's something wrong with us, which only exacerbates what we often already feel about ourselves. Of course, sometimes this is more direct, like in ads for pimple cream or diet pills, and usually, or usually not much oblique beating around the bush here, but rather direct painful charges. Do you find yourself alone at high school dances because of tumor-sized zits all over your face? You get the picture. But usually the liturgies of the mall and market inscribe in us a sense that sometimes that something's wrong with us, that something's broken by holding up for us the ideals of which we fall short. On the one hand, those ideals draw on the power of authentic human desires for friendship, joy, love, and play. On the other hand, they tend to implant and exaggerate less laudable ideas about beauty, power, and privilege. So at the same time that these perfect images, the, that these icons of happiness are subliminally telling me what's wrong with myself, there are also valorizing ideals that run counter to shalom. The Bible shorthand term to describe a flourishing creation, a world that realizes everything God desires for it. As such, the liturgies of the market and mall convey a stealthy message about my own brokenness, and hence a veritable need for redemption. But they do so in a way that plays off the power of shame and embarrassment. Number two, I shop with others. It is something of a truism that consumerism is an expression of individualism, of individualism, of both self-interest and self-absorption. But this perhaps misses a certain kind of relational relationality and sociality that attends the mall's liturgy. After all, it does seem that going to the mall is often a social phenomenon, something one does with others, sometimes even in order to be with others. However, 
what sort of vision of human relationships is implicit in the rituals of the market. While we might participate in the mall's liturgies in pairs or groups, what model of human interaction is implicit in the story it's selling us? It seems to me that despite being a site of congregation and even a venue for a certain kind of friendship, in fact, its practices inoculate an understanding of human interaction that fosters competition rather than community. It inscribes in us habits of objectification rather than other regarding love. Because of the mall's emphasis on ideals of image, and because we are immersed in such ideals almost everywhere, these slowly seep into our fundamental way of perceiving the world. As a result, not on, we not only judge ourselves against the standard, but we fall into the habit of evaluating others by the same standards. For example, we, if we could somehow analyze ourselves as a friend of a friend approaches our circle for the fr first time, we might catch ourselves looking him up and down or finding ourselves taking a quick assessment of how all courant she is in terms of fashion and accessories. I can't tell you how many times I've watched the circle of young women around my daughter and noted the lightning fast up and down assessments or watched as one of them looks at her shoes and purse, and purse while they think no one else is looking. What, what just happened is those habits of unstated judgment and evaluation. Two things, it seems to me. First, we've implicitly evaluated others vis-a-vis -vis ourselves and then tri triangulated this against the ideals we've absorbed from the mall's evangelism. Second, in doing so, we've kept a running score in our head. Either we've congratulated ourselves on having won this or that particular comparison, or we've demoralized to realize that, once again, we don't measure up. Subtly, then, we, we've construed our relationships largely in terms of competition, against one another and against the icons of the ideal that have been painted for us. In the process, we've also objectified others. We have turned them into artifacts for observation and evaluation things to be looked at, and by playing this game, we've also turned ourselves into similar sorts of objects and evaluated ourselves on the basis of our success at being objects worth looking at. While at the mall, no, while the mall touts itself as a third place for friendship, it breeds human interaction that is at the root a formation of, a form of competition. We have to unlearn the habits of consumerism in order to learn how to be friends. Number three, I shop and shop and shop, therefore I am. If these icons of the ideal subtly impress upon us what's wrong with us and where we fail, then the market's liturgies are really an invitation to rectify the problem. 
They hold out a sort of redemption in and through the goods and services the market provides. Goods and services will save you. The mall holds out consumption as redemption in two senses. In one sense, the shopping itself is construed as a kind of therapy, a healing activity, a way of dealing with the sadness of frustrations of our broken world. The mall offers a sanctuary and a and a res- respite that, at least for the, a time, cover over the doldrums of our workday existence. So the very activity of shopping is idealized as a mean of quasi-redemption. In another sense, the goal of shopping is a acquisition of goods and the enjoyment of services that try to address what's wrong with us, our pear-shaped figure, our pimply face, our drab, outdated wardrobe, our rusting old car, and so on. To shop is to seek and to find. We come with a sense of need, given our failure to measure up to its iconic ideals, and the mall promises something to address that. The narrative of the mall's outreach, the veritable stained glass presentations of the happy life implant within us a desire to find that version of the kingdom, the good life, which requires acquisition of all the accurtimos in order to secure the ideal and combat our failures. But of course, here's the dirty little secret, which we get imitations of, but are encouraged to quickly forget. When the shopping exorcism excursion is over and all the bags are brought into the house as the spoils of our adventure, we find that we've come back to the same old real world we left. The thrill of the shopping experience is over, and now we have to do homework, cut the grass, and wash the dishes. When can we go again? And while the new product has a glitz and fascination about it for a little while, we know, but hate to admit, that the dazzle fades pretty quickly. The new jacket we couldn't wait to wear to school somehow already seems a bit dingy in just a couple of months or less. The latest and greatest mobile phone that seemed to have everything when we got it in the fall is already lacking something by the summer. The video game that we were craving sits unplayed only after a few weeks because we've already beaten every level. In short, what sparkled with the thrill of the new in the mall, mall's slanted light quickly becomes flat and dull. It's not working anymore. And yet, to whom else shall we go? When? So when can we go again? This is why the mall's liturgy is not just a practice of accusation. It's a practice of consumption. It's a quasi-redemption lives off two ephemeral 
elements. The thrill of the unstainable experience or event and the sheen of the novel and new. Both of these are subject to a law of diminishing returns, and neither can last. They both slip away, requiring new experiences and new acquisitions, and the byproduct of such persistent acquisitions is a side we don't see or talk about much. The necessary, the necessary disposal of the old and boring. So while the liturgy of the market and best products with an almost transcendent sheen and glow, enchanting them with a kind of magic and pseudo grace, the strange fact is that the same liturgies encourage us to quickly dispense th with these products in a heartbeat. What the mall valorizes as sacred today will be profane tomorrow, and so five minutes ago. Hence the irony that consumerism, which we often denounce as materialism, is in fact quite happy to reduce things to nothingness. What makes such serial acquisitions consumptive is precisely this treatment of things as disposable. While, on the other hand, this practice invests things with redemptive promise, on the other hand, they can never measure up to that promise, and so must be discarded for new things that hold out the same unsustainable promise. By our immersion in this liturgy of consumption, we are being trained to both overvalue and undervalue things. We are being trained in, to invest in them with a meaning and significance as objects of love and desire in which we play disproportionate hopes. Augustine would say that we are hoping to enjoy them when we should only be using them, while at the same time treating them as well as the labor and raw materials that go with them as easily discarded. We often hear of brand lo loyalty, even brand devotion. But do people really worship brands? Is consumerism really such a liturgical experience? It may not be as far-fetched as you think. In a recent study to consider the effect of super brands such as Apple and Facebook, researchers made an intriguing discovery. When they analyzed brain activity of product fanatics like members of apple cult they found that the apple products are triggered the same bits of their brain as religious imagery triggers in a person of faith this is your brain on apple it looks like it's worshiping number four don't ask don't tell the rituals of the mall and the lit liturgies of consumption that both sacralize and profane things have another element of ethereality about them. They live, they live off a kind of invisibility, just as the mall's structure itself is a haven and sanctuary, insulated from the noise of traffic and even the movement of the sun. So the liturgies of consumption induce in us a learned ignorance. In particular, they don't want us to ask, 
where does all of this stuff come from? Instead, they encourage us to accept a certain magic, the myth that the garments and equipment that circulate from the mall through our homes into a landfill simply emerge in shops as if dropped by aliens. The processes of production and transport remain hidden and invisible. Like the entrances and exits for the characters at Disney World, this invisibility is not accidental. It is necessary in order for us not to see that this way of life is unsustainable and selfishly lives off the backs of those in the majority world. What the liturgy of the mall trains us to desire as the good life in the American way requires such a massive consumption of natural resources and cheap exploitive labor that it is impossible for this way of life to be universalized. Though those of us who live in the United States make up only 5% of the world's population, we consume somewhere between 23 and 26% of the world's energy. The liturgy of consumption burrs in us a desire for a way of life that is destructive of creation itself. Moreover, it births in us a desire for a way of life that we can feasibly extend to others, creating a system of privilege and exploitation. In short, the only way for the vision of this kingdom to be a reality is if we keep it to ourselves. The mall's liturgy fosters habits and practices that are unjust, so it does everything it can to prevent us from asking such questions. Don't ask, don't tell, just consume. Take a liturgical audit of your life. Now, of course, none of this is announced when you go to the mall. None of these messages are printed on the back of your gap receipt. Starbucks doesn't adorn its cup with the tagline, I consume, therefore I am. Indeed, to the contrary, for a while, Starbucks invited you to sign up for its own liturgical rhythms. Take comfort in its rituals, the campaign exhorted. The point is that the tenets of consumer gospel are caught rather than taught. The ideals are carried in its practices, not disseminated through messages. The same is true for other cultural liturgies. The list of sectors such secular liturgies is very contextual and will vary not only from country to country, but from generation to generation. This is why pastors need to be ethnographers, helping their congregation name and exegete their local liturgies. To recognize this is to appreciate something about the mechanics of temptation. Not all sins are decisions. Because we tend to be intellectualists to assume that we are thinking things, we construe temptation and sin accordingly. We think temptation is an intellectual reality, where some idea is presented to us that we then think about and make a conscious choice to pursue or not. But once you realize that we are not just thinking things, but creatures of habit, 
you'll then realize that temptation isn't just about bad ideas or wrong decisions. It's often a factor of deformation and wrongly ordered habits. In other words, our sins aren't just discreet, wrong actions and bad decisions. They reflect vices. And overcoming them requires more than just knowledge. It requires rehabituation, a reformation of our loves. One place to start is simply to become aware of the everyday liturgies in your life. Once you've cultivated the sort of apocalyptic angle on cultural practices that we discussed above and have begun to read your daily rhythms through a liturgical lens, you're then in a place to undertake a kind of liturgical audit of your life. You could think that this as a macro version of the daily examining, a spiritual practice inherited from St. Ignatius of Loyola. The examining is a practice for paying attention to your life, reflecting on God's presence, review your day in a spiritual spirit of gratitude, become aware of your emotions before God. Pray over one feature of your day and then intentionally look forward to tomorrow. Imagine a liturgical examining to go along with this. Find time to pause for reflection on the rituals and rhythms of your life. This could even be the focus of an annual retreat. Look at your daily, weekly, monthly, annual routines. What are the things you you do that do something to you? What are the secular liturgies in your life? What vision of the good life is carried into those liturgies? What story is embedded in those cultural practices? What kind of person do, th do they want you to become? To what kingdom are those rituals aimed? What does this cultural institution want you to love? When you see something like the mall through the liturgical lens, you become you begin to see it very differently. You begin to appreciate what's at stake in this ubiquitous feature of our cultural landscape that perhaps never garnered your attention before. You begin to sense how the mall is a formative space, co covertly shaping our loves and longings you begin to realize that what you want has probably been inscribed in the habits you've learned at this temple. You start to sense that this is a place where you've learned what to love, and you start getting worried. Good, that's where we need to begin. We can lead to more intentional Christian discipleship through the back door, so to speak. Waking up to the formative power of secular liturgies might open us to appreciate the importance of Christian liturgies that we have resisted or perhaps even denounced. A liturgical lens might also give us a new way to see historical Christian worship as a gift. Let us turn to this in chapter 3.